Ephesians chapter 6 as we uh, close out this letter. We'll be looking at these final verses as Paul is teaching the Ephesians, giving final greetings and blessings to them. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24, uh, also printed for you in the insert of your order of service. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. The Apostle Paul writes this, Hear the word of the Lord. He says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. And praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, for the last many several months, even with the break while we were gone in the States, we've been walking through this book to the Ephesians. I pray gathering much, being blessed by much in this teaching, shaping us as a, as a young church plant. But now we reach the end, this, this conclusion in the book. Where do we go from here? I was reading a book recently called Think Again by a guy named Adam Grant. It's all about trying to understand how to, how to approach uh, facts, how do we reinterpret or think, rethink some of our assumptions. And Adam Grant, in that book, he, he says, in his conclusion, he says, when reading fiction, my favorite part has always been the conclusion. So whether that's reading sci-fi like The Ender's Game or a mystery like The Westing Game, um, the twist at the end was the highlight of the story. It transformed it, making me rethink everything that I read before. He goes on to say, what bothers me most about a conclusion is the finality. He says, if a topic is important enough to deserve an entire book, it shouldn't end. It should be open-ended. I don't want the conclusion to bring closure. I want my thinking to keep evolving. Well, friends, there's a very real sense in which this letter to the Ephesians doesn't end. The topic here is of highest importance. This conclusion from Paul is, in a sense, open-ended or transformative. Because the words that Paul speaks here continue to ring in the ears of Christians today. And they should make us rethink and meditate on everything that came before in this letter. These are words that are preserving a church in Ephesus that needed to hear them 2,000 years ago, but they're also a word for us today as God's church. And the words that we read in this passage continue to shape and bless us, hopefully for as long as we live. And so although they're representing kind of an endpoint of this letter for Paul as he signs off, uh, really these are a beginning point for us in the Christian life. They're a springboard to new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what I want us to see here, the theme of this passage, this is really what a a persevering church needs to hear. 
saw a persevering church in Ephesus receiving these words, but for us today as well, what does a persevering church need to hear? And I think Paul lays out three things here for us, or three things that I want us to see as we read Paul's conclusion to the Ephesians. And the first thing that a, a persevering church needs to hear is that help is on the way. You can see that in verse 21 when Paul addresses his final remarks to the Ephesians. I want to ask you, though, kind of think back here at Paul's ministry. What are Paul's strategic goals when it comes to ministry? I mean, Paul's a prolific preacher. We know that. Paul likes to plant churches. He's committed to doing that. But perhaps what we overlook sometimes is that Paul is also intent on strengthening churches, helping them. Paul's not content to just preach and leave, preach and leave, plant and leave, plant and leave. He is also obsessed, actually, with revisiting as much as possible the churches he's planted, the people he's preached to. And that includes this church and surrounding churches in Ephesus. He is concerned with them growing in the faith, and so he wants to strengthen them. We see this throughout his ministry. You see, we see it here in these verses in Ephesians, also in the book of Acts. You may remember Acts chapter 14 talks about Paul and Barnabas. They had preached the gospel to Derbe, made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. And then it says, strengthening the souls of, his, of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. It's also one of, I believe, that one of these overlooked goals in Paul's ministry and in the church today, the need to strengthen and encourage churches. Now, the Ephesians are going to get that. But they're not going to get it from Paul directly here. Because what's happening? Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. And although he can't go there physically, he's going to send this man Tychicus to go instead. Paul wants to help alleviate some of the concerns that the Ephesians have for him, but also to spur them on for future ministry. Tychicus, this man, is kind of an unsung hero in the Bible. We don't know a ton about him, but we do know that he's mentioned at least four times in the New Testament in Paul's letters. Um, he's mentioned in Acts as well. He's one of Paul's most trusted, faithful companions, traveling companions on Paul's uh, missionary trips. We know that he's from the region of Asia. It could, be, in fact, be close to Ephesus. Uh, but he's not from Ephesus because Paul is actually introducing him here to the church there. We know that he was a, a loyal a companion for Paul, but Paul had to introduce him. And so he needs to explain who Tychicus is and why he's sending him. And so Tychicus comes with this superb letter of recommendation from Paul. Notice here in verse 21, Paul describes him as a beloved brother and a faithful minister. It's not just saying Tychicus is a good Christian, although that's certainly true. Uh, Paul is saying, this man has labored alongside of me through thick and thin. This man is faithful in the sense that he's endured hardship along with me. Tychicus is um, a close ministry companion through many trials. Tychicus is not a Demas. Demas that was in love with the world and, and deserted Paul. Uh, Tychicus is experienced, so Paul is is burnishing his credentials, as it were, as he sends them to that church in Ephesus. And friends, I don't know about you, but for me as a pastor, when I stopped and meditated on this a little bit more about what Paul was doing here, I was struck. 
Because Paul regularly sends out some of his best to help out these churches in need. As a pastor, I think, wow, Paul, that's, that's pretty bold. Because he's not stingy with his resources, right? Paul is not self-centered. Just stop and remember, Paul is in prison, right? Paul doesn't know what's going to happen next. He might be facing possible execution. Uh, he might die in prison. He could be feeling lonely, isolated, and yet he still thinks of the needs of others. Another person might have said in Paul's shoes, I need all the help that I can get. Send people my way. Um, I can't afford to give up resources right now. Can't you see that? I'm, I'm, I'm languishing in prison. But he doesn't do that. He is so concerned and focused on strengthening other Christians that he's willing to give whatever they need as much as he can give it. He's ready to make sacrifices. Whatever resources I can get in the hands of these churches, he says, whatever people I can send who are faithful, beloved fellow co-laborers, I'm going to send. Paul's thinking, his strategic mindset is, whatever a win is for another church is a win for me as well. And in case you're thinking that this is an isolated incident, Paul regularly does this. Think of Epaphroditus in Philippians. Or think of Timothy, who's uh, later on going to be a pastor in Ephesus. Or you think of um, Titus going to uh, Dalmatia and Crete. Paul regularly sends his beloved ministers. So as I said, I'm a pastor. I'm kind of blown away with that. Because to confess to you guys, I would love to hoard people around me to help build my church or our church. But what we need to see, what I need to see as a church, is that helping other Christians is always a win for us and for the kingdom of God. So the question is, are we ready to do that as a church? Do we have that heart? Is it in our DNA, so to speak? Now, yeah, I know that we, uh, in the past, and, and continue to set aside a portion of our budget that goes towards supporting other ministries. That's a good thing to do. We need to be ready uh, to support others if they're in need, knowing that it's also going to benefit us in some way to further the kingdom of God, but also for yourself as an individual Christian. Are you ready to sacrifice your own needs, your own comforts, when another Christian is in great need? Because this is not just a mindset for Paul, it's a mindset for all Christians. And Paul points this out in Philippians 2 when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Because after all, this is the mind of Jesus Christ, who although he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And friends, that's something that I pray all of us as individual Christians will take to heart that this other-focused ministry would be a part of our DNA, but also for us as individual Christians to send help where help is needed. That's necessary for a persevering church. First thing I want us to see then. But the second thing, here in verses 21 and 22, what's necessary for a persevering church is that mission reports... Mission reports on God's continuing work. We need to hear these. And Paul sends word here to the Ephesians to share with them 
how God is working through him during his imprisonment. Notice that again here. He says, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that he may know how we are, you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Friends, we need to understand that prior to receiving this letter from Paul, surely the Ephesian Christians would have heard that Paul's in prison. And when they did, they certainly would have felt anxious or nervous about how Paul was doing. And, you know, they didn't have cell phones and computers like we do today, right? So they didn't get word right away. I mean, when we contact somebody or we send somebody a message, I don't know about you, but sometimes just a few minutes go by and I'm like, why hasn't this person responded yet? You know, a few more minutes go by. Like, what, is this person okay? Is they... They fall into the ditch somewhere. Why haven't they replied yet? I mean, or does this person like hate my guts? Why? You know, it's, I check the clock. Oh, it's only been like 10 minutes. <coughs> the Ephesians, how much more with their means of communication having to wait days and weeks and perhaps months before they receive word on how Paul was doing? They were very anxious to know. And you can also understand that this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, kind of like the star apostle, they could be also anxious to know, is he okay in ministry? This is one of the most effective, so to speak, ministers of the gospel. He's in prison. What is God doing? You know, is, is, is the gospel going forth at all if Paul's stuck in prison? It's kind of like having your star quarterback or point guard stuck on the bench. You know, what does it say for the church? Is the gospel across the world now going to be hampered and prevented from going forth? Someone like Paul's in prison. So they need word. They need a report to relieve their concerns. And Tychicus is the person who's going to explain it to them and give them this report. He's not only going to read this letter, he's also going to fill in all the details, uh, being able to uh, share more about Paul's situation. And we do know Paul's in prison, but he's not hampered from spreading the gospel. We know that from chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says he's still bold enough to preach the gospel even in prison. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul is able to receive visitors, and he's able to write these letters. So prison for Paul was not unproductive. It wasn't even a setback. It was a new training ground. It was a new ministry opportunity So more than just alleviate their worries, in fact, this report from Tychicus and Paul is meant to spur them on and to say, how much more so in your context can you pursue God's ministry for proclaiming the gospel? What looked like a huge setback for Paul to the outside observers was in fact a great opportunity that God was using. Friends, as I thought about that this week, I was reminded of a story I heard earlier this year. You guys ever heard of SpaceX, Elon Musk, his company that launches these rockets into space? Well, earlier this year, they had a launch scheduled for a new spaceship. It's called Starship. This was kind of like their flagship rocket that they were going to send into space. Well, a few minutes into its first test flight, it exploded. To outside observers it seemed like a complete failure, right? Just a few minutes after takeoff. In fact, according to the report, 
They went like this. Well, what seemed like a failure to outside observers wasn't to Elon Musk and to SpaceX. Their response to the news of this explosion went like this. Just four minutes after liftoff from the company's launch site in southern Texas, when the Starship stage was supposed to separate from the super heavy rocket, both the stage and rocket experienced not an explosion, but a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. That's how they viewed it as scientists and engineers, a rapid, unscheduled disassembly, not an explosion. That implies failure. A rapid, unscheduled disassembly implies actually a kind of success, and that's what they said. With a test like this, success comes from what we learn, and today's test will help us improve Starship's reliability. Friends, for Paul, his imprisonment was not a failure to launch. It was a rapid, unscheduled missions reassignment. And God was using that, even if Ephesians couldn't see it right away. Not only to accomplish great things in what Paul was doing, but to spur on the Ephesians to say, how much more so are we to be encouraged in ministry with the opportunities that we have? What looks like failure is actually an opportunity. Helps us as Christians as well to read and hear this report from Paul, to know how God is working in different parts of the world, right? The Ephesians could have seen. Actually, the gospel is continuing to go forth, even in a place like prison. And so as Christians today, we also benefit greatly from reading reports of ministry that's happening in different parts of the city or different parts of the country or different parts of the world. Spurs us on to see outside of ourselves how much bigger God is, even in very difficult places where he's working. Our family traveled back to the States earlier this year. I had an opportunity to share with many churches about what the church in China is like, about what we're doing here. You know how many Americans were shocked by that? Americans' perceptions of the church in China is that it's almost impossible to meet. You've got this government who's trying to always crack down. When they hear you're meeting here on a Sunday, you know what a huge encouragement that is to them? They say, that's possible? You can do that? Well, if you can do that in a place like China, how much more a place in the United States we ought to be doing that? Planting churches, sharing the gospel. Well, that's kind of a report like Paul's receiving here or sending to the church in Ephesus. God continues to work. This is not a setback. This is a great opportunity. And so, friends, reports of Christian ministry like this are one of the most overlooked tools God uses to encourage you in the Christian life. Yes, we need to be here in public worship every Lord's Day with believers. Yes, we need to be in the Word individually, in prayer, meditating on God's Word. But don't overlook reports from missionaries in the field reporting on what God is doing. It's going to help you see that the kingdom of light is beating back the kingdom of darkness. It'll spur you on in the Christian life. And friends, one other way, a couple of ways we can do this more practically, is we have people that in our congregation who are engaged in ministry. It's encouraging to hear from someone like Neil of what he's doing with theological education. It's encouraging to hear from people like the Chuns and what they're doing with counseling or with training pastors. 
That's an encouragement for us to know as a church to see we're not alone and God is working. But another way you can do this in your own Christian life, uh, maybe on your own, is to read good Christian biographies of saints in the past, missionaries, pastors in the past, the ways that God has worked in their lives, often through these uh, rapid, unscheduled missions reassignments. They didn't expect to God lead them to a certain place, but he did, and the things that God accomplished through them. I recommend you pick up a good Christian biography, maybe Elizabeth Elliot's Through the Gates of Splendor, maybe Don Richardson's book, The Peace Child. Those are very good accounts of missionary work. Some other biographies I'd re- recommend are Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. Maybe you've seen that movie. Another great one is uh, Roland Baton's biography on Martin Luther called Here I Stand. I promise you, if you read those, you'll be encouraged in some way in your own life. Or even, uh, we picked this one up recently, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, not a biography, an allegory of the Christian life. There's a great new edition that's come out. I highly recommend it. Reading accounts like this helps to stir us on to see outside of ourselves what God is doing and how he continues to work. So do that. It's a great help to you as a persevering Christian to see how God is working these kinds of ministry reports. But there's a third way I think Paul here is helping us as Christians to persevere in the Christian life. It's the final two verses here in this letter, verses 23 and 24. You see that Paul proclaims a blessing, God's words of blessing. He says there, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, there's three main words here of blessing that Paul's using. Peace, love, and faith. These are persevering for the church. And Paul is actually ending his letter here in many ways that he began it. So and it's a way to kind of trigger us to go back to the beginning of the letter and say, what did he say about peace and love and faith? I'm not, I'm not going to go back into that right now, but maybe that's a good practice for you today, later, is to reread the whole letter in light of what Paul is closing with here. But just quickly, Paul talks about peace. Peace is one of the main letters of, I mean, one of the themes of this letter, this reconcile, reconciling among people, this breaking down of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, between male and female, between masters and slaves, all one reconciled only through Jesus Christ, the only way that that is really possible, that peace that we have. Or love with faith, he says. You recall Paul's earlier teaching that we must be building each other up into Christ our head that comes through love with faith, speaking the truth in love so that we grow up in Christ. These themes of peace and faith and love, and love incorruptible even, Paul says here, meaning love without hypocrisy, that it's without malice, it's without deceit. Uh, These are the types of things Paul hits on in the letter that if we are to be united as a church, united as Christians, if we're to persevere, these are necessary um, blessings, necessary graces that we need as a church family. And friends, those are only possible when they're bestowed by Christ. These aren't really necessarily things we can just work for. They can only come because it's a gracious, it's an unmerited favor from Christ. They don't just come out of the blue. 
These are covenant blessings that are won by Christ and they're bestowed on his people. And the only way that the church can know these gifts is is through the work of Jesus Christ. Christ is our covenant head. And what he has accomplished and won for his people is what he bestows. And what all churches and Christians need to persevere are words of blessing that God gives. So notice that I say here, words of God's blessing. These are words of God's blessing. Many commentators, when they talk about these verses, and even if you open your Bibles, I have my Bible open right here, the editors of my English Bible put the heading, Final Greetings. Paul's Final Greetings. Some say his prayer for the church. While these verses are at least a prayer from Paul, while they're at least a greeting or final greetings, there's so much more than that. There's so much more than that. What Paul is doing here is pronouncing a benediction for the church. We need to understand what that means. We don't just gloss over it because it gets to the heart of what worship is and what worship looks like. There's a lot of misunderstanding, I believe, in many churches of what's going on in public worship. Because in our human frailty, our human weakness, we often think that worship is primarily about what we do, about us, about what we say to God, about what we offer to God. And that's not what worship is primarily about. Worship is primarily about what God says to us, what God speaks to us, what God does for us. In worship, God always gets the first word and the last word. He calls us. We don't call him. We don't send him off. He sends us off. So what exactly happens at the end of a service anyway? After the sermon, after the prayer, how does the worship service end? Is it just like, hey, peace out, guys. See you later. Our work here is done. Many churches don't even pronounce any sort of benediction. The worship leader just says, have a good week. See you later. Or some churches close with some good saying from the Bible, and God, I hope God blesses you this week. A prayerful passage from Scripture. Is that wrong? Not necessarily wrong, but I think what the biblical pattern God has shown us is that he blesses his people at the end of the service and commissions them with his own words. That's what a benediction is. A benediction isn't just an elaborate Christian way of saying goodbye. It's not a fanciful wish, like I hope tomorrow's really good for you. It's not even a prayer, a simple prayer, asking God to do these things. A benediction certainly isn't a command. Those are not words that God will use to help his church, although he could. But God's pattern for worship is so much greater than that. The benediction at the end of this service is the high point of Christian worship on the Lord's Day. Because the gospel, as I said, is the benediction is a gospel word from God. Benediction means bene, good, diction, word, good word. And it's good because these words are a blessing that God pronounces by his minister on his covenant people. It's a bestowal of covenant blessings by the covenant mediator. That's the main difference between a benediction, say, and a doxology. A doxology that we'll have in just a few moments 
is us going to God, earth to heaven, a word of praise. But the benediction is a word from heaven to earth, to you. It's God's word of blessing. So Paul is speaking or writing a benediction to the church at the end of this letter. It's not Paul's words, primarily. These are God's words from heaven through his minister. God is our benefactor in heaven, and we are his recipients on earth, and our mediator is Jesus Christ. Jesus bestows the gifts that he has won. Let's think about that. As God made a covenant at creation, and he promised Adam and Eve to bless them and their descendants with life if they obeyed that covenant, those demands of the covenant. And had Adam obeyed God, he would have received for himself and for all his descendants the covenant blessings of life with God. But of course, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They did not fulfill those covenant requirements. Instead, they earned God's covenant curses. That's why they're cast out of the garden. That's why God pronounces that curse in Genesis chapter 3. And as their descendants, we all stand under God's curse. God will bring final judgment against those who have broken his covenant. And yet, God did not cast Adam and Eve, or even us, into hell. In the garden, God promises to send a redeemer, one who will crush the head of the serpent. And our only hope is in the one who has fulfilled the covenant requirements, who bears the curse of sin on behalf of those who he represents. And according to his plan of redemption promised in the garden, God himself sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to become a man in order to live the sinless life that we should have lived and then to die the death that we deserved in our place for our sins on the cross. There he bore God's condemnation for all the sins of all his people. And Jesus suffered our sentence at God's own command. But God raised him up from the dead to prove that Jesus died not for any sin of his own, but for ours. And God accepted Jesus back to heaven's throne to demonstrate his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice for our forgiveness. Now, here's the key thing. By Jesus' death on the cross and by his resurrection from the grave, Jesus not only crushes the head of the serpent, but as our covenant head, he wins all of those covenant blessings that were promised in the beginning to Adam. All those things that Adam failed to do. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the second Adam who fully obeyed God's covenant. And therefore, as a mediator of that covenant, he bestows the blessings of it on his covenant people. What does this have to do with the benediction? Well, you remember after Christ's resurrection... He appears to his disciples and he shows them his resurrected body and he teaches them from the scriptures about who he is. So he opens their minds to the scriptures. He promises to send the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke 24, what's his final act of ministry on earth? What's the last thing that Jesus does before he ascends into heaven? You remember he takes his disciples out to the hill at Bethany. And what does the text say? He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus' final act of ministry on earth was to bless his people, to bless his covenant people. He lifts up his hands 
and bestows covenant blessings that he won as a successful covenant keeper. Jesus fulfills Psalm 24 when it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Jesus is the only person you can say that's absolutely true of him. And he ascends not into a literal physical temple, but into the spiritual temple next to his holy father. He is the one who has ascended to Mount Zion already. And from there is pouring out the blessings upon his covenant people. He's our mighty king, our true prophet, our great high priest, who is in the holy place with God. And because of that, he can pour out, turn around, give all the blessings promised from God. So what all churches and Christians need then to persevere are God's words of blessings found here at the end of Paul's letter. We need grace that Christ has won for us. We need peace that flows from that. We need love that flows from that. We need faith that can only be given by Christ, who's won it. That's the only way we can persevere as Christians and in the church. But the only way you can receive those covenant blessings, of course, is if you are united to the covenant head, to Jesus Christ. So if you are united to Christ by faith, you receive all the spiritual blessings that have been won by Jesus Christ. That's how Paul started off the letter. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. So as we look to him in faith, as his disciples did when they stood at Bethany, watching and listening and receiving the blessing from Christ himself, we are reminded of our need to completely trust on Christ alone. So friends, when I, as a minister or another minister in a worship service, pronounces the benediction at the end of the service, it's not because of my own authority. It's the voice of Christ pronouncing that blessing in the name of Christ. Because Christ is the one who bestows it. He won the blessings. He's the mediator. The minister isn't doing that as the mediator. Christ is. I, as a minister, am doing this as Christ's representative. The minister is called by Christ, ordained to the ministry by the government of Christ that Christ has instituted. Same thing with the declaration of pardon. When I raise my hand for the declaration of pardon, not because I have any power on my own, it's because I am pronouncing. I am uh, the representative that God has appointed for this. It's not some holdover from Roman Catholicism or something. The benediction and the assurance of pardon, they're also not just making statements. They're actually performative. They're actually doing something. So just like, uh, think of this. Just like when an employer says to an employee, you're fired, those words are not just words. They actually accomplish something. Or when an employee says, I quit, Those words in themselves carry meaning of actually doing the act of quitting. Or when a minister marries a husband and wife and says, you're now husband and wife, those words actually carry what they accomplish. And so too, the words of assurance of pardon and benediction, they actually count as spiritual realities. Christ speaking to you, your sins are forgiven. This word of blessing is for you that you need to persevere in the grace of Christ. Friends, if that's the case, if that's what you're hearing in the worship service, 
Why would any Christian ever want to miss out on that? It's the best thing that you can hear all week. Christ speaking himself. As Christians in the church, we need those words to persevere. We need his assurance that he will bless us with grace when we mess up this week. We need his words of assurance that we can be victorious of sin over sin because Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. We need the assurance that he will bring us to where he is, that we will not ultimately fall away because he's gone on before us into God's holy temple. We need that every single day, friends, and Christ assures you of that, blesses you with that when we hear the words in the benediction. Friends, you and I struggle every day to fight sin, to fight devil, to overcome temptation. We can't do that on our own strength. We're fallen. But there is one who has overcome. He has always resisted temptation, who has conquered death, who rose and ascended, and that's our covenant head, Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. So friends, if you are reconciled to him as a believer, then surely as you see my hands raised or the minister's hands raised and the assurance of pardon or the benediction, so surely is Christ raising his hands from heaven to assure you, to speak his words to you, that you would turn towards him, look to him in faith, because he is the author and perfecter of your faith. Those closing words of blessing from Christ through Paul, through the minister, not the end point for the Ephesians. They're not the end point for us. They're the springboard into a life empowered by Jesus Christ to persevere in the Christian life. Friends, we need these words. We need mission reports of what God is doing. We need to know that we have help that's on the way from believers. Let's go to God now and ask him, trust in him, find comfort in those words.